Welcome to the Adoptee Thoughts Podcast. I am your host, Melissa Guida Richards, an author, adoptee, and mom. Each week, we will delve into the nuances of adoption, as well as tips for how to bring up difficult discussions in your adoptive family. And most importantly, we will not shy away from tough topics. So thanks for joining me today, and let's jump into your weekly dose of Adoptee Thoughts. Can you please introduce yourself? Well, my name is Aaliyah Santos, and I am 35 years old. I am a single mother of four children, and I am living currently in left Morocco. Where were you adopted? Yeah, so I'm a domestic infant adoptee. I was born in Texas, um, and I was adopted from, so I was in like foster care for, I don't know, six weeks or so. Uh-huh. I don't know where I was during all that time, and then I was taken to Wisconsin, um, in the United States, and I grew up in Wisconsin. Was it a private adoption or? It was, yeah. It was through an agency. Okay. I don't, yeah, I don't know all the, I don't really don't all, you know, I don't know the details of the adoption. Um, yeah. I just know it was through, it was through an agency and, um, yeah, I was, I was brought on a plane and given to this adoptive parent and that was it. Are your adoptive parents both white? So I was adopted by a single mother. Okay. Um, she was older when she adopted me. She was like 45 or something like that when she adopted me. Um, and she's she's older now. She's, she lived with her grandma her whole, or her mom her whole life. So I grew up with my grandma, my adoptive grandma, and my adoptive mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, what race are you? I'm uh, mixed. I'm white, black, white, and Mexican. So my, my, my father is... His father was from Mexico City, and my my grandmother mm-hmm. on my father's side is black, and then my mother and her family are white, my biological parents. Did your mom raise you with any cultural understanding? Did she include discussions of race when you were growing no, up? No, she didn't. So actually, um, so I would say that my, my adoptive mother was abusive, okay? Like, first and foremost, she was an abusive narcissist. Um, but then on top of that, to add the racial issues, um, you know, I grew up in a super white community. Um, I went to Lutheran grade school and I was the only child of color in my school. I was the only girl in my class. So it was like super, wow. super confusing. Um, the first time that I was called a racial slur was when I was in like third grade and I didn't even know like what it, you know, I didn't know what it meant. Um uh-huh. And it was, and then like the teacher said, you know, like, oh, you can't say that word, blah, 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 blah. And then I went, you know, I kind of like, I don't even know how I figured out like what it was because she didn't really talk about it. She was like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, it's not a big deal. Um, but, you know, the kids in my class, they used to call, like go on and on about like, oh, you're a, you're a, bra- or a Twinkie because you're, you know, white on the inside or you're an Oreo because you have white filling or this kind of stuff. Like even at, you know, from a young age. Oh. Um, and then when I got to high school, mm-hmm. it was worse because, um, like kids were outright like, you eat chicken and watermelon and this is like cornbread. That's what you eat all the time. That's why you're so big, you know, because I'm a bigger woman. So they, you know, I've been like that since high school. So they're mm-hmm. like, that's why you're so big because that's why you eat is fried chicken. Oh, it was just, it was bad, you know, in this Lutheran Christian school. Yeah. Um, and anytime I would ever bring up like racial issues or like maybe that's discrimination, like it was never, oh, you need to turn the other cheek. You, they're just bullies like you don't have to you know you don't have to pay attention Mm -hmm. to them um and my my adoptive parent was really 
Uh, she was she went on a missions trips to Africa when she was younger. So I really believe that like she she got like this you know like this saviorism in her head. Like she had gone to Africa, she had helped out with all these like poor kids, and she was gonna come home mm-hmm. to the United States and do the same. She was gonna take a poor black kid out of their you know, and she didn't know what she didn't, we didn't know, like growing up, like that I was part Mexican also, but she was going to take this kid, you know, and adopt them and help them and raise them and make them into this better person. And, you know, when I started demonstrating like my own personality, she was not with it, Mm -hmm. you know? That mentality of giving you a better life that is often portrayed in the media and everything. Right. And I would say she maybe, well, I don't know that she sees herself as colorblind. So, you know, with all the goings on with the, with the, you know, the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests, it's, it's been silence. Um, and I really don't speak to her much anymore. Like I kind of cut her off about five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have been in like very loose contact recently, just after I had my baby. Um, and she, when I said like, oh yeah, there's like, you know, there's so much going on in the United States. It's kind of heavy, like seeing like, you know, and I can't participate in protests because I'm not there. Yeah. And it's kind of just heavy seeing all this going on there. Um, she was real like, oh, well, this happens all the time. You know, like just real dismissive. Mm-hmm. And clearly has nothing, you know, like there's no understanding or recognition of that I was a child of color being raised in this whitewashed area. And, you know, that there could be something that might need to be discussed or should be looked at or should have been thought about, you know. Mm-hmm. How did yeah. you originally learn that you were adopted did she tell you when you were a, a younger baby I don't know I, I I mean I don't know when is the first time that she would have told me that I was adopted but obviously you know we're not the same color so I'm sure that it came up through that you know yeah like that we are you know that I was that she wanted to give me love or whatever this you know whatever she had told me um I don't remember anything about like talking about adoption or anything until I was like eight years old and I told her I wanted to go live with my real mom because, you know, as you know, she was abusive Mm -hmm. and I didn't know, I didn't know, you know, I didn't have the words to say that at that time, but that was like when we first maybe started talking about adoption or I remember the adoption entering the sphere of my consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm really sorry that your experience was like that. Yeah. Well, it's a common experience across adoption land as I have since found out. So I don't, I know that I'm not alone. No, definitely. My parents raised me just with a colorblind mentality. And Mm. um, I know, like, their intentions were to protect me from other people's racism, but they didn't really believe that they had racist views of their own. So I had Mm -hmm. to grow up with a bunch of microaggressions and dealing with that within my own family. And Mm -hmm. so, like, it's... I know you probably understand it's difficult when you're surrounded by other people who don't really look like you, who don't really share the same opinions as you, and you have to adjust to that. Is is that one of the reasons why you are traveling now? Yeah, so like five years ago, I went through this, I went through a really rough uh, rough breakup with a guy, Mm -hmm. uh, with my daughter's father. Um, and he like that was a super abusive relationship like emotionally abusive yeah and when I finally like realized like this is abuse you know like this is abuse I like I you know it kind of like opened this whole world so I started like searching for this stuff on google 
Like, what is this when somebody like lies to you and then tries to turn it around and makes you feel crazy because they lied, but you're the one that's crazy. Mm-hmm. And I started like figuring out about narcissism. Mm-hmm. And then I and then I was like seeing like this is like what's going on in my own family like yeah. okay, um and then that led to me like confronting her like and telling her this happened to me when I was little like why didn't you protect me why didn't you you know why weren't you there for me yeah um and her completely like denying and like putting then putting the blame back on me and I was like that's not okay like we're not gonna do that um so then once I. Once I kind of decided, like, I'm not going to engage with you, like, I, you know, I was lonely. I don't have, she's, she's, my adoptive parent was, you know, the sister and then there's a brother. So I have one uncle mm-hmm. and that's all there is, you know, like my adoptive grandparents are dead. Um, so it's, it's just his family and her and my adopted sibling who was in um, an institution because of her abuse. Wow. Um, yeah. So there's no, there's no like other family there. There's no like, you know, I'm alone. Mm -hmm. Like it's just me and my kids. Um, So when I kind of, when I broke off that relationship, I was looking for like community. Mm -hmm. And what, what, like when I started thinking about traveling, I was, I was looking for like intentional communities because this is some, like, this is a theme that has followed me throughout my whole life. Like the, you know, like movies, like Pocahontas, I want a tribe. I want to, you know, I want to know where I belong. I want to feel like I'm part of something greater than me and not, you know, like not this family that doesn't fit me, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've been searching for that my whole life. So I think that was really the catalyst to it was I was finding like this intentional communities. Can you explain for us? Yeah, yeah. So intentional communities, like you go and live with people who are like-minded. So if you are a vegan who, you know, wants to live off the land or whatever you want to, whatever you you know butcher your own animals and you don't interact with outside society so they're in some ways they're kind of like communes like hippie communes of the 60s and 70s but you can find like all different kinds so it's not just like like that it's you can you know there's religious ones there's secular ones Mm -hmm. there's there's one in new york that like they just all the moms the single moms they live together and they trade child care so they're not like a a true community but they live in the same building and then they you know they work together so I've, yeah, I've heard about that. So like that's that's like when I started traveling, that was what I was looking for was community. And then I kind of discovered uh-huh. like, oh, hey, you can travel with kids um, because I had thought, always thought that you can't. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, I, I just decided to go for it. Like I want to go explore other places. Like I want to see how it is to live in another country and how, you know, mm-hmm. like is it different than here? Like am I just, am I just in the wrong place? Like what is going on? Because I – I've always just felt like, you know, I don't belong in Wisconsin. I don't belong in rural Wisconsin and I don't mm-hmm. belong in like, you know, so, so yeah, we just did it. We, we sold all our stuff and we set out to travel the world. And now here we are in Morocco, <laughs> like two years later. And we've been in Morocco for a while now, but I think it's because I really love Morocco. Um, there's uh-huh. everybody here looks like me and it's really, com- you know, it's really, that has done a lot to like, reduce the racial you know like discrimination that I have felt in my life and like the 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 effects of that you know um just being in a place where everybody looks like you and you don't have to worry about you know facing police harassment or whatever you know Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, having racial mirrors is very I don't know like calming I guess (laughs) yeah 
yeah, you feel, uh, I personally feel like less othered and um, it's just like nice having that connection to other people who kind of get the similar experiences that I have throughout my life. Right. So where else have you traveled with your family? We started out going to, in the United States, we were doing these things called workaways. So that's kind of like also a little bit of like community building or community seeking. Um, a work, work away is when mm -hmm. you go and you stay with like a local family and then you do like you work with them. So like the first family that we ever went to, they had a farm and we worked at, we helped on the farm and we helped in their shop. Like it was an indigenous, it was an indigenous family. Um, so we helped in their shop and we learned about like their, you know, indigenous traditions and we, you know, in, a, in exchange for accommodation. So everywhere that we that we go, mm -hmm. in, if we try to do a work away, we we are engaged with like the local culture, like a local family. So it helps like that connection piece, you know, that like I'm searching for in this in this traveling. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we did we went to another work away in Illinois, Wisconsin, where we stayed with a family and they had like a farm and we fed the animals and all that kind of stuff. It was really cool. Uh, then we came to we went to Iceland and we just we just did a quick trip there because we had a layover. And then we went to France and we stayed in France for a month and we stayed at a local, like a campground. We helped this lady with camp, like her cleaning her campground and whatnot and like making sure everything is ready for the new guests. Um, that was really cool because we were kind mm -hmm. of like, we went to like a festival in the local community and just kind of, you know, like in outside of the United States, like a lot of communities are more tight knit than we are in, you know, like these small, you know, um, there was like this yeah. it was just like this little village that we were just welcome there you know with open arms um even in France and then um after that we went to Spain and we stayed and we <laughs> so originally we were going to go to Spain and do another work away but it got canceled because it was a it was an intentional community and one of the families decided that they were going to leave so kind of the whole thing fell apart mm. so we went to an Airbnb in Spain and that was like that was the most amazing experience because really we Went to this Airbnb. Uh, our host is like the sweetest lady. Uh, she always was like, oh, come with me and my friends to here. Come with me and my friends to there. Come with, you know. Um, we went to the park with them. We went to like art ex exhibitions with them. We went to the bar with them because in Spain you can like the kids go to the bar and it's really fun. They're all dancing. My youngest <laughs> daughter was just in heaven there because she's like a, a night owl and she enjoys dancing. So she was just having a good time. Yeah. Um, so that was a really good like community experience, you know. And I'm actually, so I'm actually like a super introvert and I don't, I don't mm -hmm. talk to, like, I don't talk to people. Like I'm really like hesitant to get involved in things. And even like on Facebook, like I really, like right now I'm struggling because I'm trying to like, I'm trying to figure out a way to make income um, while I'm on the road. But I kind of, you kind of need to be like extroverted mm. to do that, right? You need to like put yourself out there. So yeah. I'm like trying to figure that out. But I'm always, I've always been the one that's like, okay, just quiet. Like, don't bother me. I'm just chilling. Um, but I think traveling has really helped to like pull me out of my shell a little bit um, because you have mm -hmm. to, like, I have to be, I have to talk to other people and I have to like a little bit rely on other people to help me, you know, with four kids, it's not easy to travel. So you have to kind of like rely on yeah. other people to help you out, you know? Um, so that would be like, if I could say something about like adoption and trauma and like traveling, like that would be like one of the benefits of travel. It kind of like pulls you out of your shell and shows mm -hmm. you that like not all, not everybody is the same. So you find that traveling has really kind of helped you reclaim who you are in a way? I wouldn't say that I'm there yet, but I think that it's, it's definitely like, 
help me become more free, like more who I am, like what I like and what I don't like. Because I think like growing up, I didn't really, because you know, you know, adoptive parents sometimes. So I want, I don't want to like make blanket statements because I'm anti-adoption, but I know that this is not that about that. Um, but like adoptive parents sometimes, and like even parents in general, they tell you like, you need to be like this, you need to do this. Or like they make assumptions about like who you are or who they want you to be, right? So like I kind of never had that opportunity mm-hmm. that teenagers are supposed to go through where you're supposed to be forming your own identity. Yeah. Like the whole point of the phase of teenage teenagerness is to separate yourself from your parent, right? And to figure out who you are as a person, like mm-hmm. what you value and what you want to do with your life. But I never had that because yeah. I was... I was rebelling. <laughs> like I was, I was rebelling and saying like, I'm not going to mm-hmm. be who you want me to be, but I don't know like how to be who I want to be, you know, because I was getting in trouble. I would get in trouble for yeah. what I wanted to be or who I wanted to be. So definitely. And I think it's just also maybe because I'm older, but because I'm, you know, like I'm doing this, this is, this traveling is what I wanted. I've wanted to do since I was 15. So I'm definitely coming into myself. Uh-huh. It's been a slow process because, you know, there's so many like, like mind barriers, like you can't do that. Like it's not okay for you to do that. But traveling has definitely helped like, the freedom to be who you want to be and to experience new things and to figure out what you like for yourself. Like that's, yeah, travel is great. Mm-hmm. For that. <laughs> do you feel like being an adoptee has put an added pressure on you than let's say biological children of, uh, in other families? Um, I would say yes, because, you know, we were told that we were supposed to be grateful from day one, you know, mm. like every movie that we watch, everything, you know, everything you see about adoption in society is about, oh, adoption, adopted children are lucky. We should be grateful, you know, grateful that you weren't abandoned, grateful that you weren't thrown in the gutter, you know, and I'm actually one of those adoptees who, when it, when it, when I have bad days, when I have bad periods of like, wow, what the fu-, you know, like what the shoot, just happened in my life, like I would mm-hmm. be, I would rather have been aborted than adopted. Like you, it's not a better life. It wasn't a better life for me. Like it was a different life. Yeah, for sure. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't rainbows and unicorns. Like everything has turned out to be. So um, I think it does add a lot of extra pressure, especially, mm-hmm. especially when it's, um, you know, like a parent who can't, like my, my adoptive parent, she never married. So she could never, and she was like super Christian. So she could never have kids of her own because she didn't have a husband. So mm you know, that kind of put pressure on me, like, to be this, you know, carbon copy of her, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't happening, like, I'm not, I'm nowhere near as like you, I'm like, you know, and we're completely opposite. <laughs> Can you explain why you are anti-adoption? Um, okay, so I would say, like, and there's, like, a huge ado- anti-adoption community out there, right, mm-hmm. and I don't think that anybody is actually anti-adoption, we are anti-adoption the way that it's currently practiced in American society today. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't believe that there that there should be an exchange like forty thousand dollars for a d- domestic infant adoption. Like there should be no money in adoption. I'm anti-adoption because, you know, there, there has to be a better way than that. There has to be a better way than people like forty parents waiting for one infant to come along. Like, that's not okay. Like even even um, foster care. Okay. So foster care obviously is, it's full of, it's full of inequalities. Like they're taking these black and brown kids from their families for reasons of poverty or whatever, reasons that the system has created in the first place. 
and now they're taking them from their culture and putting them into to you know Caucasian families. And I'm not in agreement with that. Like we need to fix the problems that you know, like the drug abuse. Like where does that come from? How is that coming? You know, like how does the system that we live in affect that? Mm-hmm. So I am not anti-adoption. I would say I'm anti-adoption or anti the way the adoption is practiced in the industry today. Um, because I don't believe that there should be money, especially not billions of dollars pumped into this industry per year. Um, $40,000 to me to, for, you know, 40 waiting parents to adopt one child. Um, and it costs $40,000. That's insane. Like a lot of people don't even know that that's, that's how it is, you know? Um, and then just like the coercion that goes along with that practice, um, in, as far as expectant mothers, you know, like I was an expectant mother, a young expectant mother at one time. Um, and I went to, mm-hmm. so when I was, I got pregnant when I was 17 with my first daughter and I, I knew that my adoptive parent would kick me out. Well, I didn't, I didn't know. I thought, but I thought for sure she would. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had went to one of these house, you know, like one of these houses, like these maternity homes for help just to see like what my options were, because if she kicked me out, like I didn't, I needed someplace to go. And that was like one of the first things that they, you know, that they said to mm-hmm. me, like, oh, well, if you, you know, if you give your child up for adoption, like you won't have to worry about this anymore. Like, I didn't ask you to give up my child for adoption. I'm asking for help to parent my, like, you know. So I know that the the tactics that that these agencies are using is is predatory. So I don't believe that that should be happening. I don't believe that there should be money in adoption. And I also don't believe, like, as far as foster care, I know mm-hmm. a lot of people are hoping to adopt from foster care. Okay. So you have, and I've, I've actually worked like my last job before I left to travel was working as a licensor for foster care because I wanted to like, I wanted to help and like maybe change the process so that people who are being licensed are more um, accountable to, you know, like what they're doing. Um, That system is completely screwed up. And from the inside of that, like looking into that, that system is just wrong. Um, For me, the right now, the current practices of foster care and the removal of, you know, disproportionately black and brown children from their families and placed into white families for adoption is similar to um, indigenous families being torn Mm -hmm. apart because white America wanted to, you know, whitewash those children, get rid of indigenous practices and make them conform to white society. And for me, it's the same thing that's happening now. And we're, but we're not putting those kids Mm -hmm. into um, color, you know, families of their own color. Like now there's protections for, for indigenous children, but there's not for black and, you know, brown children, other minority children. Um, you know, for, for me, when you're looking at foster care and you're seeing that, that a lot of these kids are removed for reasons of poverty, um, or reasons that are ingrained in our system of racial inequality, uh, like you can't just say like foster care is good or like, Oh, if you took away foster care, these kids would have nowhere to go. That may be true, but like, what what is going on in the system that allows this to happen? Like, why mm-hmm. are there why are these parents drug, drug addicts? Like, why do they not have the resources that they need to parent these children? Like, what why are they really being removed? Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I I I don't like that. A lot of foster parents go into foster care knowing that they have no goal of reunification for the kid. They just want a kid, you know. Um, mm-hmm. it's, and it's so, like, when I was a foster care licensor, it was just, it was disturbing. Like the number of parents that outright, mm-hmm. the people that outright said to me, like, I want a baby. 
I want, like my hope is to get a baby from this. That's not the goal of foster care. The goal of foster care is to reunify the child with the parents, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not okay with the way that that's practiced. And I'm not okay with the way that society views adoption as far as like adoptees should be grateful. Like mm-hmm. biological kids have no, mm-hmm. you know, we, we weren't asked to bring in, to be brought into this world. We shouldn't have to be grateful for the basic human dignity of having a, a place to live or having a family, you know? Um, so, so I really just would not say that I'm anti-adoption. I just don't, I don't agree with what, how it's practiced today. I think that if there's kids that need a home and it like really, truly the parent doesn't want them. Um, the parent absolutely has been given every choice in the world to, to stop abusing them, you know, and I don't even believe that kids should be necessarily removed for drugs mm-hmm. if it's not a safety issue. And if it is a safety issue, there are many ways that can be, you know, that can be worked around to help that parent to get stable and the kids to be okay in that house. Um, and I kind of just lost my mm-hmm. train of thought, but the, but you know, states are beginning to recognize this, that parent, that kids are often better off in their families than they are being removed, even if there are safety issues, you know, the state of Wisconsin, when I was working for the foster care agency, they're, they're putting money into these, these, um, programs to help kids stay in home in home care and then have like somebody come and check on them you know yeah because they're saying that that's not that it's not it's not okay that it is traumatic for for a kid to be separated can you explain more about what your job entailed in the foster care system yes so so i was a licensor so i went out uh, you know a family would call us up and say hey i'm interested in being a foster parent um can you can i get licensed mm-hmm. so we have to license these parents right um and i would i would go to the to the house and i would go and talk to them about like their goal you know like what their family's like what their um what their income is like what their what their children are like what their house is like all that kind of stuff to determine if they were to be an okay foster parent so we had we had to do three different interviews um we had to first mm-hmm like go and talk to them about all the requirements that entails to be a foster parent, like what their house needs to look like. Um, They need to do fingerprints. We need to send them off. They have to get all these criminal background checks, whatnot. And the second, the second one was like an Mm -hmm. interview between the husband and the wife, or if it was just a single parent um, or a single person, just the, just the person about like their family background. It's like, did they grow up with abuse? Um, They had to fill out these questionnaires and we would mark like where we were supposed to, what questions we wanted to ask them to know further information. Um, so if they had like mm-hmm. a red flag, we'd ask them more about that question. Right. Um, and then also yeah. then the third interview was all, was about, was more about family life. And that was another questionnaire that they had to fill out. And we interviewed them together to see if there was any like lies being told or any like discrepancies between their information. So I just wanted to to tell you though, that when we're, we're doing these interviews, right. The interview is all about trying to make sure that these parents are okay people to be foster parents but at the end of the day none of that mattered because if you knew an, a current foster parent that was like a act like sh- that was a good foster parent and took a lot of kids in you were probably getting through even if you weren't a good fit even if you did have some issues in your background um i there was one time i had made a recommendation like that this person and i couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was that was wrong with these people but i said like these people are not like i i have a bad feeling about them and it turned out like they were they were not good people, mm-hmm. but they got through. They almost got through the licensing process because they knew mm-hmm. another foster parent. So fo- foster care, like the licensing, is a lot of politics about 
who do you know? And they don't turn down people because of red flags sometimes. They can have a lot mm. of red flags, but it's it's more about income, like how much you have a lot of income. And at least in the agency that I worked at, and it might, I'm sure it's different everywhere, but they're so desperate mm. for foster parents that a lot of people are just slipping through the cracks. In the process, were there questions about cultural awareness? Because like you mentioned, there's a lot of black and brown babies in the system. So, and I know there's laws in place Mm -hmm. that you can't discriminate against a couple because of their race. And uh, so, which is one of the Mm -hmm. reasons why white parents tend to be 70% uh, and above like the amount of people adopting and fostering. But uh, when you had white parents looking to foster and then adopt a child of color do you was there any process to ensure that they were culturally aware or uh, would be able to be in a transracial family uh, without any issues so there was nothing really in the interview part process like when they're getting licensed about being culturally aware um after part of part Mm -hmm. of becoming a foster parent they needed to take um i think it was like 12 or something classes for an hour each day to be licensed in order to finish the licensing process, they need to take these classes. And one of the classes yeah. was about cultural awareness. Okay. So in the okay. very last like two weeks before I was leaving this job, I was asked to do my, and I had only been there for a year. So I hadn't taken the training on how to train the foster parents until like the end. So my last, mm-hmm. my last two weeks, I was asked to lead this class about cultural, cultural awareness racism and bias in in foster care and whatnot um so first of all I was like I had already gotten into a little bit I wouldn't say trouble but I had gotten in trouble because of my views of you know foster foster care is towards unification not for adoption like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna white you Mm -hmm. know sugarcoat this fact that like adoption can be traumatic or like foster being separated from your parents can be traumatic like I told my I told the people I was working mm-hmm. with that and some people, they didn't like that. So I kind of had gotten into a little bit of, you know, okay. um, so I was, I was not trying to like stir the waters at that point. I was just trying to get through my two weeks and like, fin- you know, finish it off. But this, the training that I led and the fa- foster parents that I dealt with, like I was talking about, you know, you know, white, have you ever experienced white privilege or have you ever like, have you ever been privileged enough to not have to deal with this? Have you ever been privileged enough to not have to deal with this situation? And, you know, a lot of them said, well, but if I was in a different city, I wouldn't, I, it, my answers wouldn't be the same. It might be like that here, but it's not, you know, racial discrimination doesn't exist. Like there was only one parent in that training of, tw- you know, 10 parents that actually listened and, you know, was okay with hearing about racial discrimination and whatnot. The other foster parents in that class, they were just, they were basically shut me down. And like, if I try to tell them like, okay, you're, you have a child in your house, that's a child of color. Like they're going to have to deal with this at some point. Like you need to know about these things. You can't tell me that it doesn't exist. Oh, well, no, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you know, just so dismissive. And these are the mm-hmm. people that are, that are put in charge of watching our black and brown kids. Like in what, in what world is that okay? And then, we ha- you know, we have all these transracial adoptees that don't have mm-hmm. any idea, you know, how to manage life yeah. once they get out un- into the world, out of their, their parents, you know, white protection to help them. Um, so that, that's really the point of that. And if you, I guess if I, if I continue with the anti-adoption mm-hmm. theme, like I said, just not being, not being anti-adoption, but not for the way that it's practiced, I would like to see there be much more strict like checks put on um, adoptive parents as far as like psychological background, because I know that there is, you know, just talking to people in adoption land, um, like ad- other adoptees, there's a lot mm-hmm. of adoptive parents that have 
the same issues that my adoptive parent had. Like, why are we not doing psychological screenings on these people? Like, in-depth psychological screenings. Not just one time, not just two times, but, like, continuous. And, like, after the child is placed, it should be continuous. Not just, you know, not just a little kick at the surface. It needs to be in-depth. And mm-hmm. I think that that if people are going to be, you know, people shouldn't be paying money. If there's kids that need that need adoption, that need an alternate family because they cannot absolutely 100% grow up in the family that they were born to, there needs to be like one giant master list of people who are interested in mm-hmm. helping people, not necessarily adopt, but, you know, having kids, helping kids to find the families that they need. And it needs to be just one list and you get, you know, you get what you get. And they have to, they have to have all those, the checks. I mean, obviously that's not, that's not probably realistic, but it shouldn't be money. There should not be money in taking care of children. Yeah. At the end of it, I feel like, and I know a lot of people and not just feelings wise, if you look at adoption, domestic, international, transracial, whatever, it's a business when it comes down to it. And there are transactions where money's exchanged and you know you have to bring in lawyers and people like you who license families and and uh stuff like that and if you are thinking about adoption and or an adoptive parent in general i feel like a lot of people aren't educated with like you said the the practices that are involved the screening processes and just like the general laws uh there's no one standard everywhere is different Mm -hmm. and like you said people slip through the cracks and so for people like you who are um more anti-adoption than other people i am i wouldn't say i'm anti-adoption i'm more family preservation Mm -hmm. and adoption only if it's necessary i would Um, say i i I mean if, if it's necessary yes but but even the way that it's practiced like i think that just needs to be reformed you know Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think most people uh, sh- should be able to agree that reform needs to happen. Right. So I'm glad you, you have come on today and we're discussing things like that. And especially having a firsthand knowledge of the lack of psychological uh, testing and just like you said, politics where one family was approved and another would kind of be pushed through even though you saw some red flags. Right. That's just, to me as an adoptee, that's scary yeah. because you think, having these things in place like you going into homes and asking these questions would would then put a stop to these types of people who are dangerous to adopt a kid who you're supposed to be protecting in the first place Mm -hmm. well but you see you see it's really focused on financial like so even when I like I went into that agency trying to find like I want to find more black and brown families to be foster Mm -hmm. parents right but you know, like minority families, a lot of them are living in, you know, smaller homes or intergenerational homes where there's, you know, like the mother and the father and the grandparents are living in the home and the children. Okay. So foster care rules say that you need to have a certain amount of bedrooms and the bedrooms need to have a certain amount of space and whatnot. So that's not feasible. You know, these rules are written by white people with homes that are, you know, they have the capacity to fit multiple kids in their specific standards. But then that's ruling out this whole class of people who can help and could be foster parents and need to be foster parents, but they just don't match these arbitrary rules that someone who has no knowledge of minority communities Mm -hmm. has come up with. So that really also disturbs me because, because I, you know, a lot of times, you know, I'm sure you've heard in adoption land that, 
black black and brown families they don't adopt kids that's why white parents need mm-hmm. to adopt kids right but that's not really true because black and brown families they are they you know they are taking care of kids and that was even a thing with so you know kinship cases kinship and is the family that's taking care of the kid that has been removed from their other family member right yeah, biological family so even right so right so relatives but even in those cases it was really like their family but they're really hard to get licensed because they don't often typically the family of the black and brown kids don't meet the standards that oh the foster gosh. care licensing has in place, you know? Yeah. So it's crazy. It's that, that rule, you know, they need to think about the fact. And, and this is what really bothers me also. Like I had just posted about this in the transracial adoption group that I think I've, I've seen you posting. And also, I don't know if it's that one or the other one. Um, but do, do parents even realize like the depth of, the the industry that they've benefited from like it's fine for them to be in part in like these transracial adoption groups to like learn about the process after they've already adopted but do they realize do they even realize like the depth of the thing that they've participated in like how far that goes like racially and whatnot i don't think how the children were removed it's it's crazy yeah because even we as transracial adoptees like i feel like we understand a bit more than adoptive parents just in general, but we have a tendency to to learn more about the system that placed us and was part of like, you know, our right. family structures. But I don't feel like adoptive parents go into adoption looking for more information other than the basics that get them uh, approved. Because like I see right. it, I'm in some adoptive parent groups and not because mm-hmm. I'm looking to adopt, but because I'm trying to understand what adoptive parents kind of like think and what Mm -hmm. their process of it and i'm writing a book on transracial adoption called the white savior mentality for north atlantic books Mm -hmm. and one of the things i see time and time again is like which process is faster how can i get approved sooner right and you have all these people looking to just speed it through so they can get this baby this child into their home but they're missing all these other steps that should happen to kind of educate themselves and prepare themselves for what in- is involved in adoption. And like right. you mentioned, like a lot of children who are adopted deal with trauma and you have these adoptive parents who are then dealing with children acting out and um, adoptees are four times more likely to attempt suicide and all these other issues that weren't addressed in the beginning of the process. And that's a right. big issue. And another issue why like adoptees, can be abused at some astronomical rates that nobody in adoption land, like you put it, like to talk mm-hmm. about. Right. Well, I just think it's funny because even at this, when I was in this job, we went to this training about, you know, adoption and foster care and whatnot. And the state level, you know, the state of Wisconsin level trainer mm-hmm. was saying to us, like, foster parents often assume that there's going to be no trauma if they adopt a baby. And we know that that's not true. Okay, so if you all know that, like, why is this not public knowledge? Like, foster parents need to know that. Adoptive parents need to know that. Just because a child is a baby does not mean that there's not going to be some trauma involved. We Mm -hmm. know that. The state knows that. You know, government agencies know that. So why do we not, why is that not talked about? Why is the only narrative that we have in society that adoption is so good? Like, I just don't, (laughs) you know, we need to change that. I don't know how we can change that. And because people, people, as soon as you mention like fo- adoption might not be this like amazing thing, they shut down. Oh, they don't. They don't just shut down. They attack too. They go on the right, defensive yeah, and they, they attack. Do. I 
I write about my adoption and HuffPo and Zora and like all these other websites. And I get mm. some really angry emails from adoptive yes. parents who are- I've seen comments. Yeah. And like yeah. there's these adoptive parents or even just strangers who don't have any personal aspect in adoption community. They just feel defensive of adoptive parents in general and will attack saying like, you should be grateful. And then if you don't like it, leave. Mm-hmm. So, and right. like that mentality is so detrimental and like it, it's bad for adoptees and, and just adoptive yeah. families in general. If you want an adoptive family to flourish, there needs to be more understanding and open discussions like this to, because in order to make changes and to improve the system, we have to talk about the faults in them. Right. Right. Well, I think a lot of them will never care because they got what they wanted. I mean, mm. they're getting what they wanted, Right. So why they have no incentive to change. That's why I say in this, even in this group, like they've already profited from the transracial adoption. So do they really care about what us adoptees are putting into that group? Like when I mentioned, a lot of them are still pushing back and saying like, you're wrong, you're hateful, you're bitter. Like we're not hateful or bitter. We're trying to to see the realities of the situation. The reality is you have profited. You have gotten what you wanted on the back of a minority oppressed group. Uh like there's no escaping that and is it okay no it's not okay I was just talking to one of them because she had gotten like oh I'm so sorry like I don't mean to hurt your feelings like you don't need to be sorry you just need to listen Uh like just listen we're not asking for you to feel bad or to take on all the blame for this system that you participated in but listen and do better like you know help us change it come be on our side be our ally we don't ask for much like it's not you know Uh oh Girl, it's crazy. I, I, I get what you mean. And it's just like, even just talking to my parents about things. And I know you mentioned like trying to discuss like George Floyd and all those things. I mentioned Black Lives Matter to to my father and we had an absolutely gigantic blowout argument. And I was like about to leave and like not talk to them ever oh. again. <laughs> um, It got that bad just because like my dad's a diehard Trump yeah. fan and he just like does not understand at all. Um, but like, luckily, like my mom was more open to conversation and we were able to kind of, to get through. So like, I feel like it's important for adoptive parents to realize that by opening discussions about race and the flaws in the system with systemic racism and everything, it, we're not asking our adoptive parents to, like you said, to take on all that responsibility and apologize every single day or whatever. And like, say they're sorry. We just want to have people learn more and improve the system so we're helping families and not just plucking all these children out and just like whitewashing the entire situation as like this is a perfect solution because it's not and in the media like you said all the time we see like the gerber baby like oh this family they adopted this child um and I, I think recently this family adopted like five siblings and they were all uh, black kids from the, the foster system. And then mm. the media just portrayed it as like, look at all, the, uh, look at what this family's doing, this white family. Look, they kept the kids together. And it's just that, like, that straight positive angle without any discussions of like, why were those children mm-hmm. put in this situation? Like what was done to help support their family? And now you have that those children's story out for the entire world to see without any consideration to how they're going to feel when they're older. That's a whole, that's a whole another like thing too, you know, like the exploitation of the children and the Huxley, you know, the Huxley scandal, like that was another huge thing. 
Yeah, but you just like with the with the Gerber baby, you wonder like what was the reason that her her parent gave her up for adoption, and would this money that the Gerber baby is receiving help support? You know, like if she would have got that as her, you know, oh, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It's just yeah. people people don't even realize it. Um, and I just I think we need more more like adoptee voices in entertainment. Like you know, like this is us. I know that a lot of people say that I've never actually seen that one. But I know that a lot of adoptees say that that's more like true life to what they've experienced. But like we uh-huh. need to have like our own movies or something so that people understand like it's not it's not all it's cracked up to be, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I think like what's his name? I think it, Colin Kaepernick. I, I'm probably saying yeah. that wrong. He's having uh, he's working with Netflix to get a, a show up about his experience as a teenager, and mm. he has uh, adopted parents. So I'm super excited to see that when it comes out. And yeah. just like you said, representation matters, and it, it helps for us all in the adoption community to have realistic stories about our experiences. Mm. And it just like for me, just even having these conversations with other adoptees like you, it just makes me feel supported and my experience validated yeah. and less alone. Right. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I was 30, 31 years old before I knew that my adoption exp- or my life experience was not normal. I never, uh-huh. like, I really honestly, when I was, because this is what happened. So when I was like a, a young kid, like I, everything was, everything was not horrible. When I started to become uh-huh. a teenager, it started to get really horrible and I would like go out, like I would try to get away from her at all costs. So I would like be outside until, you know, 12 o'clock or curfew. I had to come home, like whatever age I was, I, I would be out yeah. until curfew. And I would always be accused of doing drugs or drinking or whatever the situation. Like I was out with friends and I was, I was getting into trouble, like promiscuity wise, because I was searching mm-hmm. for love, like constantly searching for yeah. love, but I was never out drinking or smoking or doing, you know, drugs. Um, that's what I got told. You're a bad person. You're, you know, like making me out to be like this horrible teenager. And I, I was 30 years old before I realized that that's the normal thing that teens do. Like teenagers are supposed to like leave their parents at that, you know, like that's their job. That's literally the job of a teenager is to figure out who (laughs) they are so that they can leave their, they can prepare to leave their parents' nest. Right. But I didn't, I never knew that until I started talking to other adoptees. So I think it's really, really super important for you know, adoptive parents to get adoptees involved in groups with other adoptees so that they can know that they're not alone and that their experience is not unique, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think that that's happening more because now it's the age of the internet, right? So it's super, super easy to find that information, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't for me. And I would have never, I probably would have gone through life thinking I was like this horrible person because that's what my adoptive parent told me. And I didn't know, I didn't know any better. I didn't have the words or the you know, even the knowledge to think about like what was wrong in that situation. What would your advice be for uh, younger adoptees, like teen adoptees who are experiencing similar things to what you did when you were hitting that age? Uh, you know, that's a question that adoptive parents ask a lot, right? Is like, what, what would you wish your adoptive parents would have done differently? Well, for, for me, like, first of all, like acknowledge that I was my own human being and that I wasn't like, you know, that I didn't have to be similar to her. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have never happened. Um, but like, just, I guess, learning, learning about yourself and like learning about adoption and like feeling, being able to feel like how you feel, regardless of if it's, if you, if you're angry at your adoptive parents, if you hate adoption, if you like adoption. Um, and it's, it's so hard though, because, you know, and I know you've probably heard about the fog, right? How adoptions are in the fog. Mm-hmm. So I think like a lot of people like me, 
we don't have the words or we don't have like even the like you can be ungrateful it's okay like you don't have to subscribe yeah. to this certain you know thinking about adoption so it's, I think it's really hard for young teens because they're not they're not fully like they don't have the knowledge or they don't have the words to describe how they're feeling and they they're still dependent on their parent so I guess I would say yeah I would say like they just need to know that it's okay to be themselves um, and hopefully their mm-hmm. adoptive parents let them feel what they're feeling and don't try to like, you know, judge that or try to control how they express themselves because that's really, and I think that's all in all, in all parents, you know, for my kids too, for my, I have a 16 year old daughter. And, oh, <laughs> she's, actually, she's actually a really great kid and I'm so, so proud of her, but you know, she's, that's her job. She's mouthy and she's sassy. Sometimes she doesn't do what I ask her to all the time. But her job is to figure out who she is when she's away from me. And she's so close, you know? Yeah, exactly. So adopting, it's the same with biological kids. We just need to let our kids figure themselves out and not be too strict or controlling because eventually they're going to be adults. And that's our job is to lead them through that to adulthood. Yes, definitely. I totally agree. And um, I hope more adoptive parents will learn to support their children in that venture. And if yeah. if your parents aren't that supportive, just know that, like you said, there's adoptee groups out there that you can find on Facebook. There's a big adoption community on Twitter. Um, and even Instagram is taking off where you can find other adoptees who have experienced all different things. And you can find that mm. support with in us like you're not alone so i hope any adoptee who's listening um you find your community and know that there are other people like you yes and don't take abuse just because that's your parent Mm -hmm. like you know don't don't sit in abuse and let yourself go through you know i knew when i was 16 years old that my adoptive parent was not okay that there was something wrong there but i said oh she's my parent like i have to fix it you know i have to fix it yeah don't let yourself sit in another situ- in a situation like that for 5 more years or 10 more years just because you think that you're the one that needs to fix it mm-hmm. you need to you know yeah. I, that would be my advice too like just don't 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 put yourself through that abuse is never okay whether it's coming from a partner or a parent exactly exactly i definitely agree um well thank you so much for coming on i really enjoyed our conversation thanks for having me <laughs> I'm so glad that you joined me today. And if you would like to hear more from Adoptee Thoughts, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like to learn more about me, you can check out my website, adopteethoughts.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.